Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here, and welcome to Principle of Charity Season 5. We're still going, and in fact, we're back, and we're bigger and better than ever. An absolutely incredible lineup of guests for you this season. And our big exciting news is that this episode kicks off our new partnership with the Ethics Center. They are an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society. Through their work, they bring people together, create space for difficult conversations, and encourage all to live and act according to their values. They are the perfect partner for the spirit of curious and generous conversation in this podcast. And you can check out the Ethics Center website for free access to content that unpacks the complexities of everyday life, www.ethics.org.au. And if you like what you hear today and want to help us on the mission to inject curiosity and generosity into difficult conversations, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also show your support on our socials or your socials and do what you can to spread the word. Enjoy. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Before we get into our somewhat different show today, I want to introduce our Principle of Charity personal challenge. I was sitting in a meeting yesterday and one of my clients was consistently negative about the opinion of one of his colleagues. And it reminded me of some of Edward de Bono's work on negative thinking. De Bono explains that negative thinking is attractive because it's immediate and complete. Proving someone wrong provides immediate satisfaction. It also provides a sense of superiority. Offering a constructive idea, on the other hand, does not provide achievement until someone likes the idea. So the challenge this week is, can you become more mindful when you are indulging in the negative? On that note, Emil, tell us a little bit about what we're discussing today and who we have on the show. Thanks, Lloyd. Yeah, today we have a bit of a different show. It's more of an informal one, really to announce to our listeners that we have a new producer joining Bronwyn Reed, our wonderful producer, has been working with Jonah Primo, is leaving. And we are really fortunate to have Danielle Harvey, one of Australia's most experienced festival directors, director of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, idea producers, joining to help find the incredible guests that we have on the podcast. And also to 
announce our partnership. We've got a partnership with the Ethics Centre, which the Festival of Dangerous Ideas is part of. I've been on the board. I'm not at the moment, but have been on the board of the Ethics Centre for many years. It's an incredible organisation run by Simon Longstaff, who, who did appear on one of the early Principle of Charity episodes. And we are now going to be cross-promoting and you know working to boost the Ethics Centre as well as them working hard to um, spread the word of the principle of charity. So we have Tim Dean, the senior philosopher from the Ethics Centre, joining us. He is an incredible moral philosopher, worked a lot in the evolution of moral philosophy. So we're going to be talking about moral philosophy, the Ethics Centre, introducing everyone to Danielle and looking at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and some of the challenges and opportunities it brought to this idea of having dangerous conversations in productive ways. So let's bring the guests on. Welcome, Danielle. Welcome, Tim. Danielle, we're very excited to have you join as a producer of the, of the podcast, along with um, the wonderful Jonah Primo, who our audiences know. You have an extraordinary CV. You're one of the, the great producers of ideas and culture in the country. Tell us a little bit about yourself so our audiences get to know you. And, and then I'd like to talk a bit about Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which you're a director of and which sits within the Ethics Centre, and to hear more about that. But first... You know, a few words about yourself, Danielle, and welcome. Thank you. I mean, oh, a few words. It's always like so cringy, isn't it? What, it what, is. what, what does one say about oneself? I am a, a festival director. I am a theatre director. I like to make things. I work across different mediums and I've curated and created a lot of festivals predominantly out of, out of Sydney. I'm just hungry for all forms of culture and and just interested in so much stuff so I've I've kind of carved a career where I've been able to play in lots and lots of different ways and and with lots and lots of different kinds of people from from pop stars to very serious thinkers and and for me I, I sort of see the world in that lens uh, you know popular culture needs to be taken just as seriously as as any form of politics and things like that so that's mm. uh, that's the lens that I take on everything yeah great and and so which which organizations and, and, and festivals have you produced uh, so I've worked at the Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras I created um, this festival called Binge Fest, which was a popular culture festival um, and had an amazing like 24, it went for 24 hours straight and involved people like Shia LaBeouf and the AV Club running a, a Buffy Binge Fest overnight and things like that. And that was at the Opera House, which was incredibly fun to see that place worked in that way. There's a festival called All About Women, which I co-created, and that's also at the Opera House. And there was another one called Antidote. And now I'm the festival director of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which yes, um, lovely takes segue. Place. Yeah. Lovely segue. Lovely segue. <laughs> so what is, what is the Festival of Dangerous Ideas? You know, it sits within the Ethics Centre, which we are now proudly in partnership with. What does the Festival of Dangerous Ideas do and why, why do we need a Festival of Dangerous Ideas? Mm. Well, what does the Festival of Dangerous Ideas do? It creates a place for curious people to gather and be challenged through talks and through performances and, and through experiences and things like that. And, you know, what I love about this festival is it is what it says on the tin. Like mm -hmm. It's the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And the question that you always sort of get asked is what is a dangerous idea? Yes. And a dangerous idea is, you know, something that challenges conventional 
thought or wisdom. And that can be through obviously looking at what's going on in the status quo, but also bringing people from different disciplines together to tackle you know, an idea or a problem, or it could be through a different lens. And it's in that that you sort of get the tension because a lot of the times people, there's so many problems that we just sort of don't want to think about. So this festival is about bringing those ideas into the light, shining the light on them, giving people an opportunity to feel a little bit uncomfortable and hopefully to feel a little bit informed. And whether that changes their opinions or not, that's not really the purpose of the festival. The purpose of the festival is to be a platform and a space which allows for people to to be curious and to, mm. to go there. And that's why it sits under a place like the Ethics Centre, you know, which is very much about the unexamined life being not worth living from Socrates quote um that's the kind of guiding principle of the ethics center and 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 that's what the function of the festival does great great and what you know if there are a couple of highlights from the festival of dangerous ideas a couple of guests you brought out or sessions you've had do any spring to mind oh my goodness so many spring to mind obviously a pussy riot uh, that was that was you know very challenging but also really interesting and, and we ran those sessions in russian with a translator Salman Rushdie to think, I know that Lloyd's interested in Salman Rushdie and to think about, I don't know if that would happen now. I mean, hopefully he will be back to doing live events again soon, but Mm. certainly at the time he, you know, he was uh, very easygoing (laughs) about the security and things that were needed, but they were definitely in place. Christopher Hitchens, I never saw, but he started the festival. He was our first guest and um, with a talk religion poisons everything and uh, Stephen Fry who I'm such a massive fan of and then to have him come and do this festival and just be so incredibly reasonable I think like one of my favorite quotes from the festival has come from him which is it's not it's not dangerous ideas that we should be concerned about it's dangerous realities and I just I love that because that is so often as we're going to talk about in the principles of charity you know, where people start to put their focus rather than, you know, the, the reality, the outcomes of, of what these mm, things can mm, create. Mm. David Simon, the creator of The Wire and Treme, who talked about some people being more equal than others. And then just, you know, great people like Jermaine Greer, who in the context of that event, letting somebody like that just espouse and to hear from them is really incredible. Alicia Garza from the Black Lives Matter movement, who gave everyone in the room a really amazing reality check. Mm. You know, just the fact that we were there discussing Black Lives Matters as a dangerous idea mm. still, you know, in this day and age. And then the, the, the ones that have really stayed with me have been probably ones of less, less well-known, but were very impactful. We had a speaker, Mark Tierson, who did a session on um, torture, torture is necessary. He worked with Bush and that whole administration and, uh, you know, he would say that the techniques were not torture, they were enhanced interrogation techniques. Mm. And I thought it was very brave that he came and did a public festival where he probably knew he was walking into a room where the majority of people, particularly with a a title like that, were, you know, going to be already, you know, heated. And he did the talk and I, I really do think it was one of those ones where, you know, people probably didn't leave going, you know, he's right, but they did leave with a better understanding why certain conservative views see, you know, all means necessary as mm. the best way forward. 
Another one I, I really uh, found quite provoking was um, Kaja Ekis Ekman, who did surrogacy is child trafficking, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a way of looking at that that I'd never really thought about. I'd always thought about, you know, a woman's body can do what she likes. It's just a muscle. If you want to use it to do this, you know, I was very flippant in my own views and I found um, her thinking and thoughts about it to be, you know, really spectacular. So, yes, the yeah, festival wow. has, the, has the big names, but also it's those kind of uh, unexpected ones that often stick with you. I mm. think uh, our, our listeners can understand why we are we are very happy to have you um, involved in <laughs> finding our guests and um, hopefully even further elevating the sort of conversations we we're able to have. Thanks, Danielle. Tim, over to you. I mean, you know, you're a senior philosopher at the Ethics Centre. I'd love you to talk a little about yourself and introduce yourself because we haven't done that yet, but also just to talk about the Ethics Centre more broadly we're in partnership with the Ethics Centre now um, in a sort of cross-promotional and sort of, uh, I guess, a, you know, qu- quite, a, quite a deep relationship. So what is the Ethics Centre and um, what's your background? Yeah, look, thanks for having me on here. Tell you a little bit about myself. I, I'm a philosopher, but I've also worked as a journalist for many years. And it was in drawing these two threads together that I saw that there was a bit of a gap like science has this idea of science communication, the importance of engaging with the public around important scientific issues, whether that's uh, climate change or, you know, it could be environmentalism, it could be health, all sorts of different dimensions. Where are the philosophy communicators? Where are the ones who are engaging with the public about what matters in our lives, what's meaningful, what's important? You know, what what purpose do we derive? What sense do we make of the world? How do we understand our role? And so I saw an opportunity to bring some experience that I had as a communicator and as a journalist, primarily a science journalist, along with my philosophical training, to work to engage with the public around philosophy. And so it was a natural fit for me to begin working quite intimately with the Ethics Centre. So the Ethics Centre is, it's a not-for-profit organisation. And our primary goal, our slogan, is that we want to put ethics at the centre of everyday life. And in a way, it already is at the centre of everyday life. Like, the way I think about it is, every big decision that we make is guided by our values. It's guided by what we think is good and bad. And not all values are ethical values or moral values. I could value, you know, having enough wealth to be able to travel and to spend and to enjoy nice food, but I have other values that could trump that. The ethical values are the ones that tend to trump that. I'm not going to just knock someone over in the street, take their money, and then go off and pursue my other values. So we are already driven by values. And the first issue is we often don't know what those values are. If you think about a really big decision you've, you've had, had in your life, what were the values? Can you rank them? Can you order them? Can you say which values are prioritized over others? And which of those were ethical values? Which, which of those values should you have been prioritizing? And I've spoken to many people who, when they get an opportunity to really think ethically through that ethical lens, they think about what is a good life? What kind of life should I be living? What kind of life do I want to exemplify so that other people can live that? they can sometimes realise that, oh, my goodness, I've been making these decisions. Like I spoke to a guy who said, look, I, you know, I value making a, a good income so that I can look after my family because my family is the most important thing in the world to me. Then he had this realisation. He's like, oh, my God, I'm working so hard I barely see my family. 
And he realized there's a conflict in his values. Ethics is an opportunity for us mm. to reflect, bring that to the surface. So the Ethics Center, we work with the public, we work with business, we work with government, we run, run events, we run workshops, encouraging people, creating spaces where people can come together and discuss these things, reflect, use the tools of two and a half thousand years of philosophy to understand what is a good life, what kind of life should we be living, and how do we make the world in general a more ethical place. And given ethics and those ethical decisions from so much of the really important decisions of our life, it is amazing how little education there is around morality and ethics. And I guess, you know, a, lack of understanding of the tools we have at our disposal to help make better decisions. And the Ethics Centre helps that. I, I I was on the board for an, many years at the Ethics Centre, enjoyed every minute of it. And Simon Longstaff, who runs the Ethics Centre, has been on the podcast as some of the people who've heard his episode on, on AI and the future of jobs will know. But Tim, you know, your philosophical background, as I understand it, is in moral philosophy. It's in evolutionary moral philosophy. You've said that the most dangerous people in the world are not those with weak moral convictions. They're the ones with the strongest moral convictions. What do you mean by this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I, I think sometimes we feel like there's not enough morality in the mm. world. And just a quick distinction, I talk about morality as being our kind of deep down values. They're enculturated. They're a part of our upbringing. We just absorb them from the world. They're often unexamined. They mm. shape the way that we see the world. Whereas ethics, on the other hand, is the reflective kind of rational scrutiny that we place over those values. So there can be an alignment with our morals and our ethics, but there can be a misalignment as well. And so what I, what I think is that we often think that there's not enough morality in the world. We mm. see all these terrible things going on. But then if you think about who are the most dangerous people, this is the, the question I, I like people to think about. It's like think about someone who has no moral standards at all. They're entirely self-interested. They might be callous. They might not care if they, you know, uh, barge in front of you in a line and they might be rude. But the thing is, if they're self-interested only, they're not going to go out of their way just to hurt you. They're not going to incur a cost to to see their, their goals, you know, achieved. Whereas with morality, one of the interesting features about morality is it tends to trump many of our other concerns. We are very motivated to, to see our moral worldview realised. And that means that if we have an extreme moral worldview, if we have a black and white view, we have a really Manichaean view of the world, good and evil, and I'm on the side of good, and I identify these people as being on the side of evil, then morality can become quite sinister. It can motivate us to incur enormous costs, perhaps even the ultimate cost. We can kill others we might even be willing to die in order to see our idea of good ascend and our idea of evil mm. fail. And this is where I talk about examples of people like Timothy McVeigh, the uh, bomber, the Oklahoma bomber in the United States. He was very strongly morally motivated. His manifesto was laced with moral language of good and evil. And it was his absolute utter conviction that his morality should trump others' concerns that justified for him committing such a, such a heinous act. Mm, mm, so mm. the trick is to, to understand that morality can be a weapon as well as a tool, so we need to use it effectively. And to, to ensure we, I guess, 
have a broad enough understanding of morality so that we loosen the black and white thinking and sort of allow for, well, we'll talk about, I, I like to get into sort of your ultimate, you know, view of where where this sort of thinking leads to. But before, I'd just like to touch on the evolutionary side of morality because morality for someone who's studied, you know, evolution and the science of evolution, morality is a function of evolution. It has emerged as an evolutionary benefit for us why does moral you know why do we need to have a morality where does it come from in evolutionary terms and 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 how does moral perception differ between groups yeah look these are great questions and i should flag being a philosopher things that i'm going to say from my perspective a lot of people are going to disagree with and a lot of philosophers are going to disagree with this as well but I'm going to put forward my views because I think these are are worth thinking about a little bit. So one of the really interesting things is that a few million years ago, our last common ancestor with chimpanzees looked a lot like chimpanzees look today. So chimpanzees haven't changed much in that several million years. They still live in small bands, quite hierarchical, slightly cooperative, but often quite, you know, combative groups. But we've changed a lot. We are now living in these enormous, multicultural, diverse, cosmopolitan, global societies. And the big difference is that in our past, our ancestors figured out the problem of how to cooperate, how to reduce tension, how to reduce violence, how to build upon each other's abilities such that we can all benefit And this enabled the groups of our ancestors to grow larger and larger. They could do more things. But as groups grow larger, they also get internal conflicts. You get conflicts of interest. You get uh, this person wants to do this or this person wants to do that. When you start trusting other people, which which is the fuel, it's the lubricant of cooperation, when you trust other people, you leave yourself vulnerable to exploitation. And what it, it, it turns out is that evolution started to solve these problems by imbuing us with, first of all, what are called moral emotions, outrage, guilt, empathy, sympathy, these feelings of of wanting to help those who are in trouble, of wanting to punish those who do the wrong thing. And there's an interesting feature of our species is if you take food away from a chimpanzee, it will get angry at you. But the chimp sitting next to you they won't care that its neighbour just got robbed. We are different. If we get robbed, we get angry. But if we see someone we don't know steal something from someone else we don't know, we still get angry. That's a part of our moral machinery is this idea of third-party outrage and punishment. We get outraged. We want to do something about it. So this is the foundation. This is the kind of psychological and, and emotional foundation of morality, but that's not all. The other thing that our species innovated through evolutionary time is what's called norm psychology. We are really sensitive to how everyone around us is behaving. We're really sensitive to the patterns in how they're behaving. And we're really sensitive to punishment when we deviate those norms and those expectations of others. And that simple little psychological device is then can create this entire scaffold of ethics, of ethical rules and ethical norms. It starts off with a kind of a conformity and punishing non-conformity, and we still do that today. Mm. And, in fact, a lot of the times that we we conform, like I, I would suggest that in summer the reason we're wearing clothes walking down the street is not because we're worried about doing something immoral if we're naked. It's because we we there's a norm. We would feel mm. uncomfortable. We would feel embarrassed. We'd feel judged 
not on a moral but just on a normative level. And it's so then we get this normative layer and the norms can can be kind of pushed in the direction of the moral emotions like outrage, but the norms can push back. So, for example, we could have a norm to say eye for an eye. You know, someone wrongs you, you get angry, it's justified for you to have revenge against them. But we can also have a norm to say, well, no, eye for an eye is bad. We understand you can be outraged and you can be angry, but we're going to have a norm to say, no, we're going to come together and collaborate to try to resolve this problem peacefully rather than rather than, than, than inflicting more pain. And then there's the third layer, which is ethics, which is a more rational reflection upon how this whole system works. What are the goals? What are we trying to achieve? And it's really crucial to understand because some people think evolution, well, evolution is just about reproduction. So if we've just evolved to be better at surviving and reproducing, is that the ethical goal? Should ethics be direct? But well, not necessarily because we've evolved to do lots of things that are really terrible and bad that we don't like as well. I mean, cancer's, you know, a natural product of evolution as well, but we push back against that. Outrage is a natural product of evolution, but I would say today it's harmful. So mm. we push back against it. So ethics is deciding which bits of our nature we take on, which bits of our nature we decide this is no longer functional. This is no longer a part of our toolkit that we want to use to solve the problems of how to live together and how to live peacefully. So we're, not, we're going to abandon it. And that's the, the ethical question that has gone on for thousands of years because there's no, in my opinion, no yeah. one answer. It's going to be different for different communities. And that's why different communities, I guess, come up with different solutions to the tension between what we evolve for and, and how that plays out in society and how we organise society to best manage conflict and the moral um, emotions that, we, we, that are sort of hardwired within us. I mean, as I understand your provocation, so just correct me if I'm wrong here, is that you're saying that in order to remake morality for the modern world, which, which you've talked about, we need to understand that morality is not etched in stone, that there are different moral colours for different cultures at different times, and that just having that broader understanding of morality helps us drop it, this black and white thinking, which, which in turn helps reduce polarisation, it promotes understanding and even trust within our diverse societies. And that then frees morality, what well, sort of frees us up to adapt morality to the times we live in. Is, is that is that a reasonable summary of... Yeah, of yeah your, that's a great summary because what I think is the case is that the kinds of rules that you want to have to you know run a society smoothly so that everyone can flourish will be different. There'll be different rules if you're living in a tiny, small society, 20, 30, 40 people living a subsistence lifestyle in a, in a jungle or in a savanna or wherever it might be, in a forest, the rules that you need are going to be different compared to the rules if you're living in a large, multi-million population metropolis, living in a more transactional world where mm. you interact with people around that are more anonymous. Like if you're in a small-scale society, there's a great Australian philosopher, Kim Sterelny, he's got this wonderful line. He's like, in small-scale societies, Everyone knows who the bastards are, right? You know everybody. You know whether they're trustworthy or not. When you're living in a large-scale society, you don't know because you're interacting with a lot of anonymous people all the time. So right there, there's just one difference in two different kinds of societies that would require different kinds of rules and different kinds of laws, different kinds of moral considerations to solve the problem of how to, how to foster trust. And those kinds of differences cross multiple different dimensions. Yeah, but you, you also say that 
this understanding of the fact that morality is not etched in stone and the ability to sort of loosen up our understanding of morality allows for morality to be remade. What, what does a remade morality look like? I mean, what, what's the best version for our times? You know, where, where do you think we should be moving towards? Oh, you see, that's my next book. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, and, it's, and that is the, that's the multi-million dollar question. And I don't have a single answer for that, but I think the way one finds an answer is to look at what kind of society we're living in. What are the, 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 what's the nature of the world that we're living in? What do people want in this world? And a part of wisdom to me is understanding not just what we want, but what we should want, what we want to want. A lot of things we want are frivolous. They're not healthy. They're not good for us. They're ultimately causing us suffering. And if we examine and reflect carefully and sensitively, we discover that these things are not actually serving us. So there's a, a much bigger program to figure out what kinds of goals we want to be pursuing. And when we, have a when we have clarity around that, and then when we have clarity around the nature of the society that we're living in, you know, some of these, these variables like the scale of the society, then we can decide what kind of rules are right for us. But what I'm pretty confident about is that we have a lot of baggage from our past, what I call moral baggage. We have rules and moral views and narratives and structures that we've inherited culturally from peoples who lived 50, 100, 500 years ago, and they lived in a very different world. I think today we can look at, you know, the, the reckoning that's going on around sex and gender, around feminism, around the treatment of women, around the treatment of minorities, because we've inherited norms from previous generations that didn't care much about those kinds of things. They lived in more agricultural times where people were more constrained in the choices that they had and more, uh, you know, a certain class of people had more power to impose their will over mm -hmm. others. So we still have those norms now. Are they the right ones for the world we're living in today? We are discovering that they are not. And we have spent the last 50 years or so slowly changing those rules. And I imagine there are many yeah. more rules that we need to abandon and remake in a more considered way. Yeah, what I love about this idea is that we're first and foremost recognising that morality is contingent on, on the society we live in. It comes from the sort of material reality of our lives. And so you're first of, first of all acknowledging that morality isn't given from up high. It can evolve. It allows for then the necessity to respect other forms of morality, which do come from their own sort of cultural specificity, but it doesn't descend into relativism in an entire way. I guess that's my next question is because people do freak out at the idea of these multiple moral frameworks. They see it as akin to moral relativism where where we feel like we've got no solid ground then to defend against bad moral practices if every moral practice can be just uh, defended by their own specific, you know, cultural grounding and social grounding. And and so to find solid ground in the in the face of a moral pluralism we, we retreat and grasp onto our own moral beliefs as the only right one. So how can we have moral pluralism without it descending into relativism? And, and is genuine moral progress possible? Yeah, look, great questions. And relativism is such a bug word. It gets thrown at me from time to time. And I think people fear relativism because there's a kind of radical relativism which says that what is right and wrong is just relative to mm. my subjective views of the world. And that is a terrifying notion. So if, so if my view of right and wrong is that I'm allowed to take your wallet and go and buy a pizza, then that's mm. okay. But that's not the kind of relativism that I think any serious philosopher 
has put forward. The kind of relativism that I talk about, you've got to say it's relative to what? And it's relative to me to two things. One is our just nature as human beings, the way that we suffer, the way that we live, the way that we can thrive, the nature of our biology and our minds. This is the common humanity that we all share. And so there's a there's a common foundation that is shared across all cultures, which is just in our brute humanity, mm. in the way that we are. And the other is relative to the circumstances of our social living. Like I said, like a big, big scale society or small scale, high resource, low resource, you know, it's relative to that such that if you live in a small-scale society, there are going to be a bunch of different moral systems that are not good for you at all. They are terrible. You should get rid of them. They are either going to violate our fundamental humanity or they are going to just be a poor fit for the kind of world that you live in. So while when you, when you eliminate the stuff that violates humanity and you eliminate the stuff that doesn't fit your particular social ecology, you, you eliminate a lot of really perverse and bad moral systems, but you're not left with just one. You might be left with a few, several. You might be left with a bunch. And what's kind of interesting is the the moral systems kind of work within themselves as well. It's like an ecology. It's like the way animals interact with their environment. If there are seeds around, the beaks change over time to eat the seeds, but that changes the plants. Which So there's all these interactive effects. So you can shrink down the space to something that's more manageable and within that you can then look at the dynamics of how these different moral views interact and you can kind of build something new out of that and continue experimenting because every time you change the rules you change the social ecology and that can then mean you've got to adapt again and again this is the evolutionary process it's always moving and so where strong tribal thinking might be of benefit as, as a sort of moral framework for a small society might allow it to flourish and to, you know, defend the citizens within. It might be maladaptive for a diverse multicultural society. And so one could say, rather than taking a relativist approach, you could say that is poor morals. It's sort of immoral and ill-suited for our society. Is that is that sort of the way to link the utility of a moral system with the sort of normative part which says this is actually bad you know i can actually judge this version of morality to be the wrong sort of morality for our society yes yeah i mean i i would be i wouldn't use the word utility just because yeah. uh it's a good word but it has a lot of baggage and yeah. it's not the framework that i particularly use but yes uh, so take an example of loyalty So if you're in a small-scale society, loyalty to your group is really important, particularly if there are other groups nearby who are rivals, who can threaten your particular group. And so your interests are more aligned with those of your particular group than the other groups. And so if you see two people who are injured, you should be favouring the people in your own group rather than the people of the other group. In certain circumstances, particularly when the other group are completely hostile to you and want the elimination of your group. So you might have a rule around loyalty in that kind of a situation, or you might have a rule around honour in environments where you need to maintain your reputation. You need to protect your reputation because there's no, you know, in our large-scale societies, we have organisations that check your reputation, that police that, that make sure that the, the vendor that you're buying an ice cream from isn't going to rob you. 
but in a smaller scale society, if somebody says, oh, no, you, you shouldn't buy an ice cream from, from Emil because, you know, he can't be trusted, but you can be trusted, then you, can, you have, might have a right to defend your honour in that kind of situation. So there are certainly, you know, certain rules that will work in, in some environments that won't work in others. If we're trying to just, you know, work together and cooperate and thrive. Tim, let's move on now to the principle of charity itself as a concept. I know you're a fan of the philosophical practice of the principle of charity, but you've said that it doesn't work with bad faith speech. So first, what do you like about the concept of principle of charity? And then what challenge does bad faith speech and do bad faith actors bring to it? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. I think a lot about this. I think a lot about argumentation and disagreement, like talking about morality and moral diversity. I think it's inevitable. So we have to find ways to engage with people that we don't necessarily agree with. Mm. And the principle of charity is such a key component to that. My understanding of it is it, it kind of starts from the idea that whenever we say something, whenever we're in conversation, we're not delivering a lecture. And it, often the, the stuff that we're talking about, you kind of probably need to deliver a 40-minute lecture to say everything that you have to say, to cover off all of your assumptions, to cover off all of your beliefs, to cover off all possible objections, to be able to express in full your view. But instead, when you're chatting with someone in a cafe and over the dinner table at the pub or something, you don't have 40 minutes, you've got like 30 seconds. So there's a lot left unsaid. And so how do we hear that? When we hear someone only give us a 30-second spiel, we need to fill in the gaps. How do we fill in the gaps? And the principle of charity says you don't fill in the gaps with the with the weakest possible version. You give them some charity. You, you fill in the gaps with the strongest possible version. And you maybe seek, you ask questions, you seek agreement, you seek, you know, clarification around things rather than assuming the worst about somebody. Mm. That's about, that's charity around an argument. We can have charity around a person too. What are their intentions? You know, are they intending to be good or intending to be bad? The problem though, is good faith versus bad faith speech. And good faith to me is about your intentions. What are your intentions when you're engaging with in, in this conversation? Is your intention, intention to find truth and understanding or is your intention to manipulate, to win, to impose your will or to change someone's mind whether they agree with you or not? Good faith is about having the right kinds of intentions, speaking authentically, aiming at the truth, cooperating with someone to figure something out. And bad faith is, you know, people who use any means necessary, argumentative fallacies, whatever it takes to kind of win the argument. But if somebody is speaking in bad faith, maybe they're using a post hoc rationalisation. They're saying, oh, no, I think this because of some made-up reason that's not actually why they think it is. If you exercise charity, you're not necessarily going to progress the conversation towards truth and understanding. If you exercise charity around a post hoc rationalization, you're only going to be revealing more post hoc rationalizations. You're only going to be giving them more room to be able to expand upon bad faith speech. If somebody is trying to intimidate, cajole or, or manipulate you and you give them charity, you're only empowering that bad faith speech. So good faith speech does not beat bad faith speech head to head. So what I think you need to do is step back another step. You need to build social capital. You need to build trust. You need to build primarily respect. You need to lower people's defences. You need to remove as much as you can their motivation for engaging in bad faith speech. And 
if you can lower that bar and you can, you know, encourage them and welcome them into good faith speech, great. But you're often not going to be able to do that. There are people who engage in bad faith for all sorts of reasons that they're not going to be amenable to any kind of engagement with, you know, respect or anything. And so those people, we just need to shut off. And exercising charity with the bad faith speech is not necessarily going to advance the conversation. Well, that's, yeah, I want to just stay on that for one sec because I have thought a lot about... I'm put in two directions when I think of how to deal with, I'm put in two directions when I think about how to deal with people who approach a conversation in bad faith. On the one hand, there's the, you know, we're in a prisoner's dilemma of sorts where, you know, if we both come with good faith, we both win. But if someone's bad faith and I'm good faith, then it's rational rational for me to, you know, sort of move to bad faith because bad faith is going to beat good faith. And so you end up if you suspect someone might be in bad faith, moving to bad faith yourself because you don't want to be the schmuck who's giving them the benefit of the doubt if they're not giving you the benefit of the doubt. However, another part of me thinks even if someone comes in bad faith, it's actually rational and better to stay in good faith because for two reasons. Firstly, we will then understand, even just understanding the best version of their argument gives us the the ability to to argue with them and to defeat them. You know, if you understand the worst version of their argument, you are less armed than if you understand the best version. And secondly, we never really know if someone, I mean, in some cases we do, but often it's hard to know if someone's coming in good faith or bad faith. And so there's a sort of meta good faith there where you should assume good faith until absolutely proven otherwise, because I I think given these concepts are quite subjective, we can too easily, I, I guess, you know, convince ourselves that someone whose viewpoint we don't agree with is actually coming in bad faith, and we can just end up undermining the principle of charity itself, you know, and, and conflating bad faith with with viewpoints you don't agree with. How do you think about some of those things I raised? Look, I, I really, I really like that. I really like the way you have expressed that. I, I love this idea of meta meta good faith, and I totally agree. I think when we start, we need to assume good faith until proven otherwise. And even when there's a a hint of bad faith, it doesn't necessarily mean like a post hoc argument or someone uses an argument Mm. fallacy or something like that. Don't try to catch them out. Don't, you're not there to prove, you're not there to go, oh, see, I I, I knew you were bad faith because you said one thing. Yes. Look, I totally agree. When When I used to teach critical thinking and I was teaching all the different argumentative fallacies and all that kind of stuff, I, I had a bit of a, a crisis of faith in this all in this whole process because I realised I was just weaponizing these things. A, <laughs> a, I was just weaponizing them because students were like, "Hang on a sec, why why are these argumentative fallacies here?" It's because they work. Because if you want to win, you know, you go a bit of ad hominem. You know, you, you do a bit of ad populum. And the other way they were weaponizing is, as you said. If somebody else used a, a, an ad populum or whatever it is, they'd be like, oh, look, you did an ad populum ah, in your face. And it was a kind of what I call the fallacy fallacy. You're throwing a fallacy back at someone. You're not actually promoting good faith speech by doing that. So, yes, we need to assume good intentions and give everybody every possibility to express good intentions and open the doorway to allow people in. And, and a lot of that is through our language so that we don't slip into using you know, categorical language, obviously, or accusations or belittling. We've always got to maintain a a level of respect in the conversation that we do. That's the very first level of any conversation is to respect the inherent humanity of the person that you're speaking to, despite how angry we might be getting at the time. But for those who continually fail 
to show good faith, then I think it's important that we uh, we do draw a line somewhere mm. because at that point, if someone is just throwing, you know, angry expletives in your face, that's where uh, exercising more good faith, like you said, it's like a prison limit. The Nash equilibrium just becomes, you know, mutual bad faith. So you need to step out of that particular conversation and have a different conversation to defuse why a lot of, a lot of bad faith is motivated by insecurity by not being seen, by a feeling of lack of validation. What else can, what other conversation can I be having such that I can encourage someone to not feel like bad faith is the only way they, they can yeah, go right. and that can open more good faith. Thanks so much, guys. I'm going to hand over to Lloyd now for the On The Couch section. That was part one of our Principle of Charity conversation. But join us next week for part two where Lloyd meets the guests on the couch to throw them curveballs with unfiltered, hard and personal questions. See you then.